Well, if you would, turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2. We were going to look at the book of Acts, but when we said, ah, we're meeting every other week, that's limiting our time frame a bit. And so Michael and I bantered back and forth with a variety of options. What are we going to teach? What are we going to study this this fall? And I thought, nothing better than Revelation 2 through 3. The state of the seven churches that, that Christ writes letters to are so pertinent. In fact, there's a quote at the top of your notes. It says, the message to the seven churches peg revelation firmly to our world. It is a word of hope addressed to people who need hope, people who may have faltered. The message, like so much of the New Testament, bring us encouragement. There never has been a perfected or perfect Christian community. We can all agree to that. Christians have been faithful and heroic, and they have been frail and facilitating. This, these seven letters are so timely. I, mean, I don't need to tell you that. If, if you question that, where's Micah Clark? I saw Micah earlier. Yes, just have him address from the American family perspective and the ministry that he carries forth of what's happening in our, our country and around the globe. And so we decided, let's study these seven letters. And I know some of you, years ago, I taught a Sunday school class, and we walked through the book of Revelation and unlocked all the keys to the book. Ha ha. And uh, <clears throat> I think we asked more questions than we gave answers. But I, I, I want to return to this because I, I just feel these are timely words and, and words that we need to hear. And so the first of these seven letters is going to be seen here in, in Revelation chapter 2. But let me back up. For some who've never maybe studied the book of Revelation, you've heard a lot about it, and it seems a little wonky or crazy. It's like, oh, that book, nothing is weird. Uh, let me kind of lay out some things for you here. Uh, chapter 1 is an introduction in which we meet Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 uh, are the things that are present. That is the seven churches, the state of those uh, places in Ephesus that, or excuse me, Asia Minor. And then from moving from after chapter three, I would argue it's all future and we can discuss eschatology. And I, there's probably a zillion views in this room, but our focus is going to be on the seven letters, as I stated, and, and where they are located is modern Turkey. I also thought that was relevant in light of, uh, having, uh, uh, Andrew Brunson come and speak since he had served in this region as a missionary for 20 years. What we're going to see with these seven letters, they're very similar, and the structure is given there in your notes. There's an opening address <clears throat> to the angel of the church. You'll see this every time the letters start. There's always a description of Christ. Revelation is important, if nothing else, due to its Christology. Christ is exalted throughout that book. And think about it, <clears throat> um, we lose sight of Christ, this world really does seem like there's no hope, right? Uh, the things of this day, I was talking to a former colleague yesterday, and he said, I, I preached on Sunday, and I said, what did you preach on? He said, just Christ. He said, uh, he said uh, they're struggling health-wise, he said, so many of their friends are in the hospital, and he said, we just need to see Christ, and this book of Revelation saying, this is the apex of the Old and New Testament, and we're going to see Christ described. Secondly, or third, there's an assessment of the church that we're going to see. Strengths and weaknesses. Two of the churches 
There are no weaknesses cited. Uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia, it's simply, yay, well done. There is one church, though, that no strengths are given, only weakness, and that's Laodicea, which we'll see at the end of the seven uh, churches. There's a command to the church that's given. So that's the next portion you'll see in these letters, a typical structure. There's a promise of the Lord's return, which is very important. And then you have the conclusion, which entails a call to listen and a promise to the overcomer. We'll talk about who the overcomer is and how that fits in. Sometimes those are flipped in the letters, and we'll see that as we go along. So with no further ado, let's get to Revelation chapter 2, and let's look at the church at Ephesus. This is the mothership of the seven. Uh, she will talk about this, but this is the who's who. This is like the moody church of Chicago. I mean, they've had uh, pastor after pastor who's well-known or apostle, and we'll talk about that in a second. But it says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write the following. <clears throat> this is the solemn pronouncement of the one who has a firm grasp on the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, the text has already told us who this is. Chapter one, if we saw this, in fact, if you jumped up to verse 16, it says, he holds seven stars. Go back to chapter one, verse 12, I turned to see whose voice was speaking to me. This is John, our, our writer, John the Apostle. And he says, when I did so, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Christ, right? Son of Man is, is the title Jesus uses most frequently of himself in the Gospels. And so when we get to chapter 2, verse 1, and we see this one who has now we, we see a firm grasp, that's changed before he just held the stars. Now we see a firm grasp. In other words, he holds those churches, he protects them. And it says the one who walks, he's not just standing among the seven gold lampstands, he is walking, he's actively engaged. That's Christ. So there's the description of Jesus, which again fits this pattern. This is point two. It says, I know your works as well as your labor and steadfast endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil. Okay, this church has got it, right? This is exciting. You have been even put to test those who refer to themselves as apostles, but they are not and have discovered that they are false. I am also aware that you've persisted steadfastly, endured much for the sake of, this, of my name and have not grown weary, but I have this against you the same word that is used up above in verse 2 when he says, you cannot tolerate evil, I cannot tolerate this against you, is what Christ is stating. Remember, this is Jesus speaking. You have departed from your first love. Therefore, remember from what high state you have fallen and repent. It's repeated twice in this letter. Do the deeds you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. That is, if you do not repent. But you do have this going for you. You hate what the Nickelodeons practice. Practices I also hate. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice it's plural. This isn't just for the letter. Or this isn't just for the group at Ephesus. And I would argue it's just as important to them as it is to us today. To the one who conquers, I will permit him to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God or the boat of God. 
Well, let's jump back. And we, we know a lot about Ephesus, don't we, from our studies of the, the New Testament? Tell me about this church. What do you know about Ephesus? Let's just make a list. Help me out. It was start, it was, you said a Paul, the Apostle Paul was involved. Good. Yep. Missionary journey, Acts. We get into Acts 18, Acts 19. Good. What else? Timothy was given, do you remember when Paul's about to croak and he gives the baton to two young men? He gives one to Titus, says, you're taking the Isle of Crete. And he says to Timothy, you're taking the pearl. <laughs> I'm giving you Ephesus. Tells us a lot about Timothy. We won't go there today. But Timothy takes this, and you see that in 2 Timothy. Uh, Tychicus is given the message to deliver in that to the church at Ephesus. But yes, what else do we know about uh, this church? Who else was involved at uh, Ephesus with the church? We, John, I will argue, yes. John, definitely, I will argue. John the Apostle. Uh, Barnabas, no, not that I know of, but we have, who else do we have that, that was involved? Apollos? Anything else with this church that we know? Paul will spend over two years at Ephesus. No wonder they knew their doctrine well, right? I mean, look, look who's involved. Paul was personally involved. Timothy's involved. Apollos is involved. I mean, <clears throat> you want to talk about a church that's been greatly blessed, right? They had the D.A. Carsons of the world. Yes, Tim. Yeah, there's... <laughs> I was thank you, Tim. I wasn't going to go down that road. Um, <clears throat> probably need to do that. There are some scholars who believe these seven churches are the stages of the life of the church throughout history. So each church represents a period of church history. The last one, Laodicea, which is the one that has no compliment, <laughs> that is, the Lord says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth, is the, 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 the church at the end of the age. So that's one view. Um, but what you're asking, and, and I think there's some problems with that. I think you're fitting round pegs in square holes. So I, I wasn't going to go down that road. But what I, what I think you're asking is, is true. I do believe these are letters directed to a specific church, these seven churches that we're going to see. But because the plurality is mentioned there in this one, it says there in verse 7, uh, the Spirit says to the churches, much of what we're going to see in this letter can be applied to other churches. Does that make sense? And that's why it's so relevant for us to even today. There is... Um, <laughs> when I was young and naive, I had an assignment that I did for a class, and I, I'll never do it again because it was bad. But I said, after we studied the seven churches, I said, now, tell me which church your home church falls into. Uh, you know? Um, <laughs> We're not going to do that, but uh, that wasn't good. But as we study these seven churches, you may say, wow, that really resembles this church, or hopefully you're not saying Community Bible Fellowship, but, you know, or that resembles this church. Um, I think there's some connections that could be made for sure. Um, so Adam, did I answer your question, or did I? Okay, all right. Yeah, so... Uh, any other thoughts on, in fact, let me just give you a little church history as well. Uh, the early church fathers, Ignatius and uh, Justin Martyr, had served at Ephesus and the fourth uh, council of the church in the fourth century. 
or third ecumenical council in the fourth century was held at Ephesus. So this is a key strategic location. And we're going to talk more, even Paul writes, we have an entire letter in the New Testament given to them, right? Uh, uh, called Ephesians. But let me tell you a little bit about the town because all of these seven letters, this is what we're going to see as we journey through this. The cultural historical background is so important in understanding these letters. John didn't pen, Christ didn't deliver these words in a bubble. For instance, Laodicea, you're not hot nor cold. Well, we know they had a real problem with water coming from the mountains and the springs. And some were lukewarm when when the waters arrived, et cetera, et cetera. All of that's there. If I take you to Laodicea, I could show you the water pump station. It's still there today. And how these these aqueducts were brought, these pipes uh, and system. So some things with Ephesus. Let me just highlight a few things. The ruins are spectacular. Anyone been to the ruins at Ephesus? A few of you. Yeah, there. It's there's no words to describe. Uh, in fact, in the first century, Ephesus had over a quarter of a million civilians. Quarter of a million, fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, the largest city in Asia Minor. And this is the theater that you can see. And in the bottom of your notes, I give you a little bit about, it It was a Roman provincial city. It was even allowed to mint its own silver coins, which was not granted to many provincial towns. So and this is a very significant town. And you say, well, why is that? Well, economically, it was the crossroads. There are three, some argue four, but three major trade routes, let alone the harbor, that, that it was kind of like Indianapolis. It was the crossroads of Asia Minor, right? Uh, And and so you get that idea. Um, And so you can see some of the ruins today. If you ever get to go to Ephesus, it's dynamite because I tell you, uh, I love teaching at Ephesus. You just open the text and say, okay, over here, this happened. Right here, this happened. I mean, you can see it all. It's just dynamite. Corinth is the same way. So if you ever get to go, go. Uh, it, it, it's fantastic. I mean, right over here, if you can see it, you probably can't see it from the podium. There's the Agora where Paul did his tent making. Uh, it's just, yeah. Anyway, well, wish we had more time. But what this town not only was known for being economically affluent, uh, strategic, politically as a town, it was also significant when it came to religion. She, this town, was considered the keeper of Artemis. And you say, well, who is Artemis? This is one of the gods that was worshipped in the Roman Empire. <clears throat> the the structure, the temple to Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. Uh, and you can see this is one of the coins minted. Uh, this is the, supposed to be the front part looking at the goddess in the temple. This is the only thing left of the temple today is this little column, which is humorous in some ways. But Artemis is worshipped throughout the Roman Empire. I could take you outside of Turkey. We could go to Greece. I could take you to Northern Africa, and I will show you a temple to Artemis. But she's based out of Ephesus. This is no wonder they freaked out. Remember when the silversmiths, hey, <laughs> we're losing income because people are turning from worshipping Artemis, you know, to this worshipping this Jesus. This is not good. And so all of this is seen in a, in a, in a church that is in Sin City, so to speak, in a town that is very polytheistic 
And there, no wonder this church has said, hey, we're holding fast to truth. We are not going to bend in the midst of this. It's so key. And we see that here. Well, let's look at the letter then, the structure. But as you do, as you turn back to Revelation 2, are there any questions about the background? There's a whole lot more we could say. But um, you're going to see this uh, when we look at Artemis. She was known as the goddess of the heavenlies. And when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 1, he says, we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. In other words, our Lord is far greater than this God that they worship here at Ephesus. And there's several other connections, and we'll see that. But um, well, let's look at the opening. The opening, as we mentioned, uh, you see two descriptions that are given for Christ. As we, we have seen, uh, the first of those is that Jesus grasped. This is the first time that's mentioned uh, versus what we saw in 16 of chapter 1. As well, there is the emphasis upon Jesus walking among the lampstands. This is key. Christ, again, is going to be described in every of these letters. And watch that as we move along. Well, let's look at the strengths of the church, starting in verse Two and then going to verse three, uh, this idea that I know is key. As I mentioned there in your notes, it's an absolute knowledge. It's one of intimacy. It's used five times in the letters. I know you well, Christ states. Why not? He's the one who holds them in his hand. He's the one who walks among them. He's fully aware. <clears throat> I wonder how many church business meetings would change if we knew Christ was right there, <laughs> knowing full well what's transpiring and what is said. But we won't go there. That's too convicting. We'll move along. All right. And so <clears throat> he says he knows their deeds. And secondly, he's cognizant that they are intolerant of false teachers. They are not going to, in fact, he mentions later, you don't practice the things of the Nickelodeons. We don't know who those are. Uh, we don't know who that people group is, or these, this cult group. Um, probably someone similar to Gnostics, but anyway, regardless, they're not practicing any of this. Why? They've been well-trained. They know their theology. There's no question here. They've been to cemetery. They've been to seminary, right? They, they know this stuff, and, and they've guarded it well. And so he says, you, you know your I know your deeds. They're great. I know, secondly, your, in your intolerance of evil people. And then finally, he, the, he recognizes, is there in your notes, their awareness that, yes, you are enduring, which incurs seven times in the letters. He goes, I know that you're enduring. I know that you're standing fast. Remember where they're located. This is not a Christian community. <laughs> Ephesus wasn't founded as a, a Judeo-Christian town. Uh, it's a very pagan town. And uh, if you don't belong to the temple of Artemis, you're not a true member of the community, kind of, just so to speak. We already saw that if you go back to Acts and all that that entails. And so you would think, wow, this is great. This group is on fire. They know their theology. They're, they're tracking along. This is fantastic. And yet what you have is the frozen chosen. Because the weakness we see in verse 4, look what the text says, I have this against you. And that is extremely strong. In other words, you could just you could say, I am really ticked. <laughs> and remember, this is Christ speaking. You have departed from your first love. 
Wow. If you were to go back and reread Ephesians that Paul wrote to the church 30 years before this letter was written, Paul refers in the letter to the church at Ephesus, the word love, more times, one out of four occurrences of love in all of his writings occur in Ephesians. I believe Paul, as he ministered to this church, understood this is a real danger. We've all had uh, opportunities to maybe, well, maybe you haven't, but to teach or, or have young people in your life, maybe kids, and you, you see some tendencies, you go, hmm, careful. <laughs> I see where you're headed. I mean, I had, you know, a former colleague called about, oh, a couple years ago and said, well, did you hear about so-and-so? I said, no. He goes, well, they've abandoned the faith. And he said, I'm really surprised. I said, mm, I'm not. I had them in Greek for two years. I thought uh, they were <laughs> above the text. It was dangerous then. And, and this is the idea here is uh, Paul, as he writes that letter 30 years before Revelation chapter 2, he said, there's real danger here. And then when John writes 1 John, which is to Ephesus and all those surrounding churches, what does he stress? Love. Love of the Lord, love for others, which are litmus tests for, for one's true spirituality. And, and so as Christ is commending them, he says, yeah, well, here's the real problem. You've lost your first love. Perhaps this morning you're saying, yeah, that's kind of me. I've lost zeal for the Lord. I'm not excited about the things. Of course, I guess if you're here at seven o'clock, you are excited about the Lord. Uh, preaching to the choir. But uh, we all know folks who are saying, yeah, I, I've, I've kind of struggled in the spiritual walk. It's, it's kind of on like this for some time. Well, here's the good news. And, and don't you love it? The Lord just doesn't take out the paddle and spank him without giving some opportunities for improvement and, and how they can change. And he, he gives us three things here uh, um, and, and, and ways to, to move forward. And this is there in your notes, the solution to the church, but it's found in verses five and six as he says, you've departed from your first love. He said, here's the solution is to this. First of all, you need to remember. What are they to remember in verse five? For what high state you have fallen and repent. <clears throat> the problem with orthodoxy or biblical knowledge is it, uh, that it can puff up, can't it? <laughs> and we start to think we're the cat's meow and we have a corner on truth and we are the, the end all. And it's a very dangerous place to be. In your notes, I state, remember is a device frequently used in the early Christian text to encourage those addressed to live up to or to recapture early moral and spiritual standards. He's saying, have you, Christ saying, have you forgotten where I have brought you? Read Ephesians 2. You were energized by Satan. You did your own deeds. Those who have miraculous salvation stories in the sense of being saved from, I don't know, uh, whatever, uh, addiction or, or uh, you know, th they're quicker to remember than those of us who maybe grown up in a Christian home and were saved at four or five years of age. And uh, we don't have this huge testimony in that regard. And it's easy to forget even at age four and five, I was a sinner that needed God's grace. It's that you need to remember what Christ has done for you. And then secondly, he says, 
It's not just to recall. It says, and then you need to repent. You need to get on your knees. Now, remember, uh, this, this is the Sanhedrin in the, of the church, right? This is the who's who. Uh, they have the seminary degrees. They've had the Bible institutes with Timothy and Paul. They've read Christian books till they're blue in the face. And he's saying, you all need to repent. Whew, that's hard to hear. And what he's talking about is decisive action. And again, he repeats that term, as I mentioned, later in his, uh, Christ does in his letter to this church. And so he says, you need to repent. And then he says, and here's the key, you need to return to the things you once did. The remembrance about also has creating action. And Osborne in his commentary on Revelation says, orthodoxy without orthopraxy is a false religion. In other words, doctrine without duty, it's useless. Yay for you. Hang that on your beak. But you could also argue just the opposite. And I would argue practice without duty is a problem. The two have to go hand in hand, right? I mean, look at, look at Paul's letter to, to the church at Ephesus. I'm going to come back to that. The first three chapters deals with where God has brought them. Think about that. It's all doctrine. It's not until chapter four that he starts to deal with duty. Again, 30 years earlier, but I think he knew exactly where they're headed. Romans, chapters 1 through 11, deal with doctrine. In fact, it deals with the doctrine of justification being declared right. It's not until 12, until 16, that you deal with duty and action. But both must come hand in hand. But here's the problem. In their ivory tower, they have missed the needs around them. It is dangerous, isn't it? The more you study, the more you... you, you uh, commit to learning the doctrines of the faith, et cetera, is, is to lose sight. It's very easy to lose sight uh, of, wait a minute, we also need to be putting this in action. We need to be doing. Well, let's look at what also stated there in the letter and in your notes, because there is a warning. The Lord's saying, yes, here's how you need to get back on kill. This is how you need to a return to, to what I've called you. But look what the Lord states to them. He says, I will come. Look at this. Look at what the text says. He says, if you do deeds at first, if not, I will come to you. That is not coming for a uh, social visit. <laughs> uh, he's not coming to have tea and, and uh, scones. Uh, when that phrases used, it's, it's indicating judgment. I am coming with a very large paddle with holes in it, and you are going to get spanked. In fact, it's very alarming what he says, because this issue of judgment, it says, look what he states, and I will remove your lampstand. In your notes, I mentioned this. What in the world does that mean? Some say that they'll lose their status as a church. Some scholars have argued that the removal simply indicates the church's loss of her testimony. I think it's stronger than that. I, I, you could spray Ichabod across the door. The glory of the Lord has departed. It becomes maybe a facility, but that's all it is anymore. Think about this. 30 years, this church has been this huge lighthouse, well-established. And the Lord's saying, be very careful the day that a church thinks that they're the end all, be careful. You are just brick and mortar. 
The Lord does not need iron to iron. The Lord does not need community Bible fellowship. The Lord doesn't need, you can, he doesn't need us. You fill in the blank, right? He doesn't. He can use whomever he wants. It's by God's grace that he has allowed Ephesus to flourish. It's by God's grace he's given them unbelievable teachers, pastors. <laughs> they should be rejoicing. Thomas, in his, in his commentary, two-volume commentary, states there in your notes, it is hard to conceive of a loss of testimony as an act of divine removal. Testimony is lost automatically through human neglect. No additional judgment notion is necessary. They're done. This great church in 30 years is about ready to fall if they don't take heed. That's, that's tough to hear. I mean, and I think about Aberdeen, where I studied for my PhD, in the three years, the second year I was in Germany, but the first and third year while I was there, for every two churches that closed their doors permanently, a mosque was opened. In Aberdeen, northern Scotland. <laughs> That's unbelievable. One, was, one, one church was turned into a disco, a uh, club. One was turned into like a bar. The, and I, I walked by these churches and thought, what happened? Uh, I mean, obviously you, you had a presence because the building is huge. Would have sat three, 400 people and yet the doors are closed and now they're turning it into whatever. And Paul or Christ states to this church, Paul saw it earlier, take heed. You are not the cat's meow. You aren't who you think you might be. It is by my grace that you are who you are as a church. And so the conclusion, he says, to the one who has an ear, it better hear. And so in your notes, you can see this. The one who conquers is an athletic or military term. And he says, I, if you overcome, you have an opportunity to participate in the tree of life. And the tree of life, uh, just to wrap this up, is a symbolized eternal life in Jewish thought. It also was used for the temple at Artemis. She was often seen as a tree, uh, standing by a tree. Isn't that interesting? He says, no, the real tree is the cross. That's where your life is found. And you can see that in your notes. Well, let me give you three quick things. I know I'm running a little over and I'm sorry. I don't normally do this, but I'm just, this is so exciting to be back together. Um, Tom went over. Uh, first of all, uh, recalling the Lord's past work in our lives serves as a basis for our spiritual vitality. We see that, but also a source of hope. And that's there in your notes. The second thing is true spirituality. Spiritual vitality requires action. And then finally, True spirituality requires one to know his or her theology. They go hand in hand. If you don't know your theology, how are you going to know how to operate? <laughs> but if all you do is study theology, then you got a problem because you're never operating, right? I can study a manual on how to drive a car, but if I don't drive one, that's useless. If I drive a car and I don't take any classes, then you're like, some 13-year-olds we know, right? 15-year-olds. <laughs> Lord, we come to you and we thank you. It's a bit of alarming reminder to all of us 
not just on a corporate level as a church, but on an individual basis. Father, it is by your grace that you use us. And, and Father, we want to be good stewards of the word, but we also want to be doers as well. Yes, uh, I think most people in this room know theology and know it well, but we also want to be known as individuals who are passionate about serving you so that you might be exalted. Lord, thank you that you stand among our midst, the churches in this land, that you hold us in your hand. Father, give us the strength, the ability, the desire to be overcomers, to stand fast until the end. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.